Welcome to Third Eye Education. Today, we are working with Sarah Zerwin. She is the founder of The Paper Graders. She's author of the brilliant book, Point Less. She's an innovative thinker, a teacher in Colorado, and just an all-around great human being. We are also joined today by Phil Olson, a English teacher in Rochester, Minnesota, who has been doing great things with kids for a long time now. We're excited to have them here. We'll get started. So Pointless, your book starts with this epiphany that points inhibit learning and that this criticism extends to traditional and standard-based grading, indeed to any dynamic in which learning is reduced to numbers. So it seems that many teachers recognize this pitfall, but they don't see workable ways to avoid points-based gradebooks. Yeah, so I recognize the toxicity. I think that that's a really appropriate word of the whole grading thing a long time ago. And let me tell you a story. I had a student once, it was a a junior. We had just read One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kesey. And we were in the writing lab. You can see how long ago this was. We actually had a computer lab where kids would go to write instead of the laptops in the room. Anyhow, we were in the writing lab and the student was madly typing away on his paper about One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And I swung by and I said, hey, how's it going? And he said, terrible. And I said, why? What's up? And he's like, I I don't, I hate what I'm writing about. And I said, well, what did you think of the book? He said, hated it. I said, well, is that what you're writing about? That gives you a lot to write about. He's like, no. I said, why aren't you writing about that? And he said, look at your rubric. The whole time I'm having this conversation, he did not stop typing. He's just typing, basically typing BS is what he was typing, that he thought he needed to type because of my rubric. And I I kind of sat back and thought, holy crap, like this kid is probably giving me some very important information right now. And, you know, I intended for the rubric to not create boundaries and walls for him, but it did. And he only saw the, the limits of what he thought he could do. And all of it was enforced by the points on the rubric. Like if you don't follow what it says on the rubric, then you're going to lose points and the points matter for your grade and the grade matters for all kinds of high stakes reasons. But that was in 2009 and I didn't actually make the shift for another four years, even though I had two really smart colleagues at my school, my colleagues, Paul Bursick and Jay Stott, who had already made the switch and had started by simply taking the points off of the rubrics they were using. That was the first thing they did just to see what would happen. And as they were doing this, we were constantly talking about it. And they were saying, Sarah, you can't evaluate and respond to kids in the same breath. Like you can only do one or the other. And the responding to them is better for them as writers than the evaluating. But I honestly could not see a way around it. Couldn't see how I could run my classroom without the points exchange in the center of it all. And it took me actually sitting in a ballroom at the NCTE conference in 2013, listening to Alfie Cohn speak. I had read his essay because my colleagues had made me do it, but it was something about sitting there and listening to him speak that finally that was what I needed. Just to hear him tell me with all the research, like, you know, kids don't take risks when there are grades at stake and kids take the easiest path to the grade when there are grades at stake and the quality of their work diminishes when there's grades at stake. Cause I had been seeing all of that in my work. Like my student, I just told you about didn't take any risks because if he did like to take the risks and go beyond the rubric and write what he really wanted to write, 
there would have been a grade penalty for that, right? I also had noticed that my students, when I'd asked them to revise, like I'd pass back a stack of papers and they'd have grades on them. And I'd say, hey, if you don't like these grades, you can revise and bring the grade up. Well, what would they do? They'd look on the rubric for the easiest place to increase the points, right? And it wouldn't be the stuff about making their ideas clearer or the organization stronger. It would be the one about fixing the errors that I had marked on the paper. So that's not revising. That's just copy editing, right? And only a handful of them would even choose to do that. So all the things that Alfie Cohn was saying explained what was going on in my classroom. And my assistant principal happened to be sitting with me at that conference. And I turned to her and I said, I'm done. I can't put a, a point or a grade on another piece of writing ever again. And she said, um, okay. <laughs> and that was November. And so I went back to my school. I wanted to finish out the semester without changing the game up on the kids. That would have been unfair. But at the beginning of the next semester, I had a really honest conversation with them just with one class. And I talked to them about all this. And I said, what do you think, guys? Should we, should we give it a go without grades? And I wanted to really see what they thought. So I took an anonymous ballot on paper from them and every single kid said, let's do it. Even though they had some concerns, even though they were worried, like, what if we get to the end and I think I should have an A and you think I should have a D, then what do we do? And I thought, it's not going to happen, I don't think. And I made a lot of mistakes that first semester, but, you know, my students and I stepped into the void and we tried to figure it out together. And in terms of like successful approaches, I mean, for me, the biggest thing that I had to figure out was the points, the points and grades for compliance exchange that sits at the center of a traditionally graded classroom is the thing that holds it all together. And that was what I was so afraid of stepping away from. In my first semester where I went gradeless, I took that out of the center of the classroom and I didn't replace it with anything meaningful. <laughs> I put all 65 of the common core standards there. It's like, all right, kids, this is what we're working on. So you're going to have to show me that you can do all these things by the end of the semester. That is way too much. And so that piece uh, didn't work very well. And I knew it didn't work very well when I had a kid sit down for a great conference in that semester. And he said, I think I should have an A. And in my head, I was like, oh, I just don't think that you should have. I don't think that that's what you have have gotten to this semester. But we didn't have anything meaningful to point to together to really figure it out. So I had to start working to figure out, well, what am I going to put in the middle instead? And that's when I realized, well, learning. I want to replace that exchange with learning. So I had to craft some really clear learning goals for my students instead of all 65 standards. And once I figured that piece out, everything else kind of fell into place. So so yeah, I mean it's it's all about moving the thing that's holding it holding it all together at the center has got to be something that serves students as learners rather than point collectors. Sarah, can I follow up on the conferences? So uh, last year I had done some collaboration with Myron Duek and had tried to do very similar things to what you talk about in in your work. I found personally that most of my successes were rooted in those conferences also students' ability to to do that reflection, that metacognition. Absolutely. And the reflection and the metacognition is key. In fact, I even have one of my learning goals is about that. You have to be able to reflect over your own learning and thinking in order to progress. So that is so, so, so important. 
And the way that I do that is I have the students out of that, the list of goals that I've narrowed my, um, the standards and my curriculum down to, my students have to pick three of those to be theirs for the semester. And they create their own versions of those goals. And then they make a plan for achieving them and a way to track their own progress. I call it their plan for learning and growth. I make them look at it every week, at least once, and reflect on it constantly, constantly, constantly. The writer's memos they write with their papers, I ask them to reflect on how the work they did. Is it helping them with their goals? So it's constant reflection and metacognition. And at the end of the semester, they write for me about their journey as a learner and where they tell the story really of where they started and where they ended up and how it went along the way. And it's magic. It is absolutely magic. And there are samples of my students' grade letters throughout the book. You can see how much agency they have over their learning and how clearly they can describe what they've learned and how they've learned it. And that's how, like better than any set of numbers in a grade book, like that is the information that really shows me what my students have learned and how they've grown. I did the great conferences with everyone that first semester because I only had 30 kids that were doing this. But now with a full-time load, I've got 155 students. And so I have them write for me. Everybody writes a letter for me first. And then if they want to talk, we can talk after I've read the letter. A lot of teachers really prefer the conferences and they make space for them. For me, just even the way that I process as a human, I really want to see what they have written first before I talk to them about what grade they think that they should have. The language I use is don't argue for a grade. Don't say what grade you deserved or earned. Select the grade that reflects the work that you did. I'm just really trying to get like totally out of the whole like proving it sort of thing. You know, let's look at what reflects the work you did instead. Every part of this process you are bringing people along with you. You have your students that had voice in even trying it at all. You had colleagues in a community that helped to empower you and, of course, helped create systemic change. You talked to your vice principal that was next to you. The individual conferences, you're, you're, you're bringing along everyone and you're giving them voice. I think that'd be very easy to miss for someone who just wants to jump in, but give authentic agency to all these different people. I'll just piggyback on one of those ideas too. Speaking of, um, speaking of voice and developing a community and really fostering a conversation. I've had really good luck, Sarah, with your idea of uh, students keeping a writer's notebook. And because that's a piece that isn't, you know, graded, isn't submitted to points, what I discover is that students are more authentic. That is where they'll take a risk. That is where they'll be vulnerable or ask a question. Can you, can you speak to your experience with employing the writer's notebook, please? Yeah, I absolutely can. In fact, I have mine right here in front of me. <laughs> after all the people cleared out last night, um, after the graduation party, I sat down with your questions and did some writing in my notebook to uh, get my thoughts together. So as my model for them is one huge piece of it, Phil, is that I've got to show them that the work I'm asking of them is so important that I'm doing it too. And the writer's notebook I have found is definitely an important place. And what I tell the kids is I want it to be an extension of their brain, right? That, that it gets to this point where they can't do the work for the class without having that writer's notebook, that it's that important, that they turn to it 
just to reflect and make sense of things. And I give them assignments of things to do in the writer's notebook. And I've even tried to make it like the one tool that they need for the class. Like I teach them how to, to make pockets. Here's, here's my pocket and the front cover for my attendance rosters for this last term. Uh, so I teach them how to make pockets or I, I have all this colorful tape in my room. And whenever I have a, you know, one of those things that might go on a binder or something, I make it half size so that it can fit on a writer's notebook page and they tape it down. So the writer's notebook becomes literally like the one thing that they need for the class. And, and yeah, there are no points or grades attached to it at all. I never collect them, but that doesn't mean that I don't look at the work they're doing in there sometimes. For example, they might do a concept map to pull together their theory that they have about a text that we're reading. And I, I might ask them to either show it to me in class or take a photo of it and turn it in via Google Classroom so that I can see the thinking that they're doing. So we do definitely look at pieces of it, but nothing is ever has a grade on it and I never collect them. I'm like, this is your space to do your work and your thinking. This is where you can start building pieces of writing. This is where you can reflect on the reading you're doing, that sort of thing. It's a powerful, powerful tool. And I really encourage them to have them on paper. I love composition notebooks. And I always go to, to Target when they've got them on sale for 50 cents <laughs> or a dollar or whatever. Before school starts, I go and I buy a whole bunch of them in our school colors. I get there early because I don't want the rival school's colors to be the only ones left. I get them and I have them for the kids and I'm like, you can buy them for me for 50 cents or just take one. I don't care to make sure that they have them. This year with the online schooling, a lot of kids did decide to go digital with their notebooks instead, which is fine. It's really fine. And I'll tell the kids, like, I encourage a paper thing because everything's so digital. Let's like actually use paper and pencil here. But um, I want them to craft the tool to work in, in a way that will be best for them, whatever that looks like. And there was a fabulous article on that that I wish I could quote who wrote it, that has research pointing out that writing is a form of thought in its own right, an externalization of the thought process. I just wanted to mention that for anybody who's listening and going, well, an English teacher, yeah, that makes sense. No, it's a way of thinking through things in an external fashion, in a more constructed fashion, structured, uh, and uh, as a teacher, a way to peer into the thought process of our students. So a fabulous tool, no matter what content you make. I'm really glad you brought that up, Nick. I've been trying to get much more intentional about that writing to think kind of writing. I even have an assignment in my class that I call rambling thoughts. And I kind of stumbled onto it accidentally a couple years ago where I asked the kids to just ramble about the ideas that they had for a big piece of writing that was coming. And it turned out that they wrote some of the best writing I had seen all year. I couldn't believe it. I was like, whoa, why aren't I doing more of this? And so I do have this, this assignment called rambling thoughts. And and my invitation to the kids is give me your worst writing. Let's not care about spelling or punctuation or, uh, you know, any of that. Writing to figure out what you were thinking is a really important piece or usage of writing. So let's make some space for that. And I'll put like 20 minutes on a timer and make sure that they've got some things, their own thoughts that they have already collected about whatever we're dealing with that they can use to ramble from. And just like, let's just see where you end up, y'all. Let's see where it takes you. So. I'm not the writer in the group here at all. I'm pretty sure about that. Although I, I, I discovered that uh, in my freshman class in college, I wrote a paper once on a book review. It was the first time I ever got a paperback with so much red ink. No one ever gave me feedback like that. 
And the teachers asked me, uh, well, what grade do you think you want? What do you want? And I said, I mean, if I told you I want an A, I'd get an A. And he said, sure. Well, all that red ink I'm looking at, thinking, well, there's got to be something to this red ink here. So I said, well, take me through this a little bit. And so he started talking, and he got down towards the bottom of the document, and I said, I'll take a B. (laughs) But, you know, I did learn something that I had to be more conscious about my writing. And uh, I think it made me aware that in my my days in high school, I did not get a lot of good instructional on, on writing, the mechanics of it, you know how to express my thoughts. I love the idea of being able to be free to just put your thoughts down. You know, Mike, that reminds me a little bit too. When I was in college, I had two college professors that went pointless, very much similar to what Sarah talks about in her book. And they were both in my education classes and it was based on conferences and certain skills we were focusing on. And neither of which were were writing heavy courses, although there were certainly journaling components and, and metacognitive pieces. But it was much more actionable. It was much more trying lessons and and things like that. But through a couple of different activities we did and presentations we did, everything was based on self-assessed grades in a conference that we had with the teacher. And we the kids used to joke that we would choose our own grade, but really you had to prove it was the grade you you earned to a certain extent, like Sarah was talking about earlier. And those were those are some of the the classes I was the most engaged in, really, because I didn't know. I couldn't like do the math and figure out exactly what my grade was. I had to be I had to be doing my best work all the time because I wanted to make sure that I ultimately landed where I felt was my best work. Just to, to highlight the fact that it doesn't have to be a writing course or an English course, you know, those were working in in practicum courses. And all of our comments are kind of orbiting around the idea which I think is a companion to taking the emphasis off grades, which is that the real learning occurs in the process. And so if we can take the emphasis and the stress off that final product and say that, no, 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 that's going to be okay as long as you're working the process. Yeah. And I've been trying to find ways to emphasize that process. That's like a a current place where I'm learning for sure. Like how do I get better and better at emphasizing the process of learning rather than the product? Because we're all about products in education, especially with our kind of test-based thing that we've been dealing with for the last many years. It's all about those test scores and the product. And so it's a lot of work to rethink and get to a place where you really figure out how to make a classroom that's focused on the process instead. Are there any tools or techniques that you find help remove that? I'm thinking like mastery transcript is is trying to do this thing where it's skill focused transcripts. Is like, is there anything that you have found facilitates that for you? So one person that helped me think about this is Asao Anoy. Uh, he's a composition professor in Arizona, and he's got a book, Anti-Racist Writing Assessment Ecologies, and highly recommend for anybody, especially writing teachers, to take a look at because he makes a really, really strong argument about why rating any writing on a rubric is problematic because it's couched in a white racial understanding of the way people use language and it fails to see all of our students clearly. And so his workaround with that, because he's come to the point, he's like, I just, I can't, this rubric doesn't allow me to see my students' abilities clearly, is that he does labor-based contract grading is what he calls it. And, and he says, if you want to be in the class, you have to do these seven assignments or whatever. And if you want an A, 
these two assignments on the seven, you have to make them longer. And then he just like puts all the grade stuff aside and just teaches his students what it actually looks like. Like how much time should you be spending at the library researching for this thing? What are you doing when you're researching? And what does it look like to talk with people about the work? Like he gets like that concrete on the process. And I'm trying to also get that concrete on the process. So revision was a place where I knew my students were not actually revising. As I said earlier, they were just copy editing (laughs) and only the ones that cared to get a few more points on the rubric. For several years now, I've been trying to keep evolving my revision assignment so that it really, really zeroes in on that process. And I think it's getting better and better, but I still have work to do for sure. But it's like, I have to teach them, how do you get feedback from somebody? And then what are you going to do with it? And how do you uh, seek a mentor text that will help you look for some ways that you can revise this piece of writing and then, you know, okay, so let's do some revisions, but point out to me all the things that you're doing and why you're doing them. And so it's so much more about the process and less about the shiny final product. I don't even care how shiny it is in the end. I'm looking for the work they're doing in the process along the way. Sarah, I'm reminded of many years ago, I was at an advanced placement literature course and and the professor shared something called a process paper, which myself, colleagues of mine ended up implementing in our AP classrooms. And then last year I did it with my 10th graders. And, and it very much focuses on that process. It's that concept of you have kind of a scattered deadline. So everyone works on a thesis. Once that thesis gets the okay, then they write a draft. And then you give just a couple pieces of feedback on that draft you need to that kid, hand it back to them. And those aren't all getting handed back on the same day. So they're kind of now staggered. And then that student has a week to revise. And it's a constant revision from the beginning of the quarter to the end of the quarter. So it becomes much more about the process. And then there's lots of opportunities for students to connect with each other and to do some partnerships and to talk about uh, how their feedback looks different from each other's. We can have whole group conversations about what are the common threads, common feedback you're getting, who are the people who are not getting those comments, and then what are they doing that's different from what you're doing. And so then there's a lot of learning from each other, a lot of organic conferencing that happens through that. And also, I would just say, as an English teacher, it was the the best way to keep from getting a bajillion papers all on one day, because you'd get you know, 10 a day. And I can go through 10 a day if I'm not giving feedback on every item, but just on a handful of items. So I never felt like I got piled under that stack of papers like I used to do early in my career. So totally stole it from another teacher, but I would never go back to doing anything else. Yeah, I love that. Definitely. Yeah. Phil, do you still do for major assignments? Say, hey, I'm going to be in a coffee shop. Feel free to drop by and I'll I'll give you feedback. Do you still do that? The digital version. I'll be at this meet from this time to that time. And, you know, that can be so powerful to just have the conversation. Because, again, I think it's not, to piggyback on Mike's story, it's not me with that red pen, which, of course, is, is limiting to any sort of future conversation. One thing I was just thinking about when Heather was sharing, again, to put the emphasis on process, a question I like to ask kids in that discussion is, you know, if writing is indeed an extension of your thoughts and is a way of knowing, then point out in your paper, please, 
where you had that epiphany, where the, the pieces started to fall in place together. Where did your argument start to come in focus? And can you share with me how that happened? And that can be really revealing because either they have a great story that says, yeah, right here, you can see, or it hasn't happened yet, which is another uh, invitation to go back to the process. I love that question. Always great to get together with fellow English teachers who are Thank you. just really trying to figure out our craft and learn so much. Awesome. So speaking of, a major issue I'd say all English teachers and all teachers have faced is the engagement of students outside of school hours, particularly around reading. And what responsibility do you think we as educators have to push back on that? And what works best in, in your classes? I think we have a huge responsibility to push back on that. You all know Cal Newport and his book, Deep Work. Are you familiar with that? So he makes the argument, and I, I share, one of the things that I have my students tape into their writer's notebooks is excerpts from Cal Newport's book. And he talks about deep work, deep thinking versus shallow thinking or deep deep work versus shallow work. And he says the shallow work is like the responding to the emails and the scrolling to the Twitter feed and the looking at sound bites and bits and pieces and all of that. And um, and he says that shallow work actually is changing the composition of our brains. And if you want to be able to think deeply, which our world needs, and in fact, he even goes so far in the book to make the argument that the people who will have more sort of control over their own lives in the future are the ones who can think deeply. If you want to be able to do that, you have to train your brain away from the shallow thinking to the deep thinking. And so I say for my students, I say, I want you to be people who have control over your own destiny. So I want you to know how to think deeply. And reading is a really wonderful way for us to do that. And so I think that we have a huge responsibility to help students to um, know how these devices that they carry around in their pockets like, can change their ability to move in the world in terms of how much thinking they're able to do. And so in my classroom with reading, uh, there's a few key components. I need to give students choice about what they read. If their whole reading diet in my class is stuff that I serve up to them, then they're not learning how to find texts themselves that really matter to them to read. So there's got to be some choice. But that also has to be balanced with some really great stuff that we read together, because there's definitely power in having a group of students looking at the same text together, because there are things that we can learn together and I can teach them about reading when we do that. And all of those whole class reads have got to be books that have the best possibility of grabbing their attention and not letting go. So my colleagues and I are always on the look for books like that. And Jimmy Santiago Baca's memoir, A Place to Stand, for one. We start one of our classes with that. Jasmine Ward's Salvage the Bones. We've been using an AP Lit and our like non-honors senior English class. And with both groups of kids, they are sucked into that book. It's amazing. So um, that's really important for the whole class reads, that it's got to be stuff that has the best opportunity to grab their attention and not let go. I've also like no numbers, points, grades, anything attached to reading, nothing. Like I tell the kids, I want you to read two to three hours a week. And if the reading I've assigned for class is filling the time, great, you're good. But if it's not, then you're gonna have to find something else to read because I'm expecting two to three hours per week. And I give them some of that some time in class to do that. And I ask them every week to tell me if they're doing that reading or not. The minute that they think there's a point or a grade or a number or anything attached to their report on how they're doing with reading, then they won't be honest 
So I want them to be honest and I really want to know how the reading's going. So um, I just asked them to tell me. I do book talks because as Penny Kittle says, readers have plans. So I do book talks and I start class every day with a book talk to give give kids ideas about what they could be reading. I model my own reading practice. I'm in the in the struggle with them. Like it is hard to be a reader right now. There's so many distractions. So I share with them my own goals, my own struggles. And uh, here's what I'm reading. Here's what I just read. Here's what I want to read. Audiobooks. Like they think audiobooks. books. I was like, can I, is it okay to, li-? like, I've just gotten to the point where I say to all my students, audiobooks count. <laughs> you know, if it's an AP lit class, I say you probably should have your eyes going over the page at the same time because of the kind of study that we have to do with the text of like this deep literary analytics thing. But yeah, and like audiobooks are still reading, guys. You're still dealing with that complexity and having to hold ideas in your head for a long time. So I, that has meant the difference between having a reading practice and not having a reading practice for so many of my students. And then finally, like the most important thing I think is time in class to read. Like the students will value what we spend class time on. They'll realize, oh, that's what's important. That's what we're doing in this class. And if I want my students to read, I better give them time to do it. Like, I don't give them the full two to three hours in a week to read in class, but they need significant time, even in a class like AP Lit. I'm talking about like 30 minute blocks of time in class to read more than once a week. Uh, Once I started turning over more of my time to them reading, then it was so obvious that they were reading. (laughs) It was kind of amazing. So yeah, that's that that piece is so, so, so important. It's interesting what you just said there, Sarah, because I, I recently have been reading John Green's Anthropocene Reviewed. Mm. And I think it's like the first or second chapter he talks about how you have to pay attention to what you pay attention to. Oh, and I think that's exactly what you just said is the kids will pay attention to what we do with our class time and what we value in our class time. And I think that really aligns with that concept of you have to pay attention to what you pay attention to. So yeah, I love that. We're going to transition here to our In the Blink of Three Eyes. What podcast, book, show, or whatnot has been influencing your thinking lately? Well, for me, it's Craft in the Real World by Matthew Celesis. It's a book about fiction workshops and rethinking the way fiction workshops, like creative writing fiction workshops work. But it's really a book about not only writing, but also reading literary fiction texts. It's amazing and kind of rewrites like all of the literary elements and like pushes back on some things that have held true for a long time, sort of in academia about literary fiction. It's awesome. I go with a podcast that I just love. It's called uh, Poetry Unbound. It's out of Minneapolis and um, the host's name is Padrigo Tuma and it's very simple. He reads a poem. He unpacks it, usually by bringing in some personal anecdotes and connections, and then he reads it again at the end. And by the end, uh, that poem has always grown in meaning. It's such a rich experience. Check out Poetry Unbound. We really value innovation. What's one innovation that you've seen recently or would really like to see? Okay, so this is a great related one. I recently found out that one of the a few math teachers in my building are literally putting no numbers in the gradebook anymore. And I have been operating like in my book, like, so you're in a school where you still have to put numbers in the grade book. How can you do that more meaningfully? And I'll, I had no idea that some math teachers, math, right? We're no longer putting numbers in the grade book until the end of the semester. And my mind is kind of like, but I would love to 
have grade books that aren't based on points and percentages to begin with. Like we get these grade books that our, our districts ask us to use and they're built on points and percentages by default. Um, let's get something different, people. So we don't have to hack them to make them work for us. Can we give some of those math teachers some credit? Do, do we have some names associated with their work? Yeah, definitely. Um, Aaron Hickman, Diana Rapp, Nico Youngren for three, for sure. Yeah. And my assistant principal, Sarah DiGiacomo, has been working with them to think through all that. So, Way to go. Way to go to all those, mm-hmm. those wonderful educators. Yep. I'm going to recommend... Um, uh, an extension for a Google Classroom. Um, you can basically now with student papers or really any student work, you can instead of leaving them a typed comment, you can leave them a voice comment. And that's really been huge this year because it's less formal, it's more personal. And I get a little feedback via the program that I know that kids are actually tuning in and listening to what I say. So I would strongly recommend anybody who's giving feedback on student work that, that kids really appreciate that. And again, I think that that really ties into this whole idea of a collaborative conversation. Sarah, something to share with your administration team if you're really looking for that gradebook solution. Something we've been piloting here in Dover Yoda Schools is Mastery Transcript Consortium, which is it's essentially a gradebook, but without grades, without numbers. Instead, it shows, it graphs your skill growth instead of uh, giving a grade component. So you still get feedback and communication to parents and whatnot. So anyways, that's my little side note. The final question is, listeners inspired by today's conversation may want to take action on their learning. What might that first action be? I have two, and I'll make them quick. Uh, The first one, in terms of grading, just talk about grades and points less. Like If you don't feel like you can really make a big shift towards gradeless or, or pointless classroom, just start talking about grades less and see what happens. Like often we start the school year with like, here's my syllabus and here's how the grades work. Like it's the first thing that you say, just don't do that. Just talk about grades less and see what happens. And my other one is like, we have to jettison constantly the stuff in our classroom that isn't serving our learning goals. Like it's so easy to clutter things up. And so I just want to like inspire teachers to be constantly, it's okay to throw stuff to the curb that isn't working. And we kind of have to like constantly look for that, but it's okay. And it's actually really freeing to be like, you know what? This thing isn't working. I'm not doing it anymore. So um, I think everyone should read uh, Dr. Zerwin's book. And when I say everyone, I mean, <laughs> not just the, her subtitle addresses it to uh, English teachers specifically, but I think administrators, I think coaches, I think any classroom teacher that is reevaluating the function of grades could benefit a lot. So thank you, Phil. <laughs> I learned so much, actually, too, myself, you know, and it reminds me of the important work administrators have to do to support teachers in their efforts to be creative in the classroom and to do something different, like change your, change how you process uh, assessments and to give kids feedback in a different manner. So we're, we are working on those things here, but I have to work on my mental set on that, too, to make sure I'm thinking about that when I talk to teachers about education. Plus, that Deep Work Cal Newport book it really intrigues me now because I think that's another real growth opportunity for us to kind of dig into that a little bit. So thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good one. And thanks for all you're doing as an administrator to support your teachers. It means a lot. Like I had my my Sarah DiGiacomo, the, the principal who's vice principal sitting next to me at Alfie Cohn's session, um, she read my book and then she started 
like pushing on the district to try to get some changes in our, we use Infinite Campus as our gradebook program. She started pushing the district to try to get a few changes so that I, you know, wouldn't have to put numbers in the gradebook. And I had no idea that she was doing that. And it felt like so much support from her to uh, to know that she was trying to fight that fight for me. So we'll just put in one little plug too for any of our listeners. If you do anything on social media, follow Sarah Zerwin. I don't know if you know Sarah, but your 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 Twitter feed is one entertaining and two I learn from it constantly. And you're one of my favorite. Uh, if I find that I've been a little bit behind on social media, I always make sure I click in and catch up on your tweets because I always learn so much uh, from you. This was a pleasure. Thank you, everybody. It's so nice to meet you, Sarah. Yeah, you too, Phil. We would like to thank Sarah Zerwin and Phil Olson for spending their time with us in this discussion. Also, thank you to Dover Yoda Public Schools, to Mike Terrell for doing our theme music, and to our podcast hosts, Nick Truxell, Mike Carolyn, and Heather Light. We are looking forward to future conversations with Laserbeak and Alon, Minnesota musician entrepreneurs, and Kim Marshall, who is the creator of the infamous Marshall Memo. If you like us, take a minute to tell other people. We'd appreciate it. Until next time. I don't know why I said until next time. This is third eye. This is third eye. <laughs>